All right, well, good morning, everybody. I feel like I need to um, take advantage of the fact that this is on wheels. Come over to yards. Are you guys sorry to everyone over here? <laughs> Maybe I'll just wheel around as I ask questions. Oh, that's all right. <clears throat> I'll survive. All right. Well, good morning. Now I messed it up. So this is probably going to be the closest thing I have ever done to uh, street teaching, because this is going to be a highway of people bringing food in and out. So just wave at everybody, say thank you, and, and uh, we'll try to stay concentrated. Um, let's open our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you uh, this morning on, on this day that you have given us to set aside for your worship and for our good and our rest. Pray that we truly would rest from all that uh, would, be, would be crowding in our minds, and there's a great deal that could be. There's the busyness from the previous week. There's the busyness of today with fellowship meal and, uh, and other things planned, uh, responsibilities, people to talk to, concerns to check in on. And yet, in all of these things, Lord, I pray that we would calm our hearts, that we would confess that uh, while these things are good, um, sitting silently before you is better. And I pray that you would help us to, to focus on you, um, even now through the time of Sunday school, but most especially as we are before uh, your throne, uh, worshiping you, hearing your word preached. Lord, now as we come to consider emotions, I pray that you would help us to be careful and introspective and thoughtful in how we, uh, how we navigate this topic and how we uh, consider our own emotions. I pray that you would help us to avoid the, the many pitfalls that we could fall into that our own hearts and the world around us would have us believe, and uh, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to mold and conform our emotions to be more like Christ. And uh, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so we're in this class on, this is tough. We're in this class and we're talking about, uh, we're talking about emotions and we're going through this book, Untangling Emotions. I think from my brief survey of the room last week, everyone that was here, uh, that is here today was here last week. Is that right? No. We're going through a book called Untangling Emotions. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so Josh went, took us through the introduction, uh, which, was, which was laying the groundwork for, uh, for what we're going to be talking about throughout the whole series. And, and he talked uh, about the, the various audiences that we're going to consider. Um, does anyone remember what those three audiences were that the book tries to focus on? Patrick knows one. Oh, it looked like he did. Yes. No. Um, I mean, I'm sure that would be contained in some of them. Yeah, yeah. So... <coughs> 
the first category would be the extremes, the people that, that you, you're around them and, and all you can think is, wow, you've got emotions. You've got a lot of emotions. Um, and then he's also talking to the people who are dead, uh, metaphorically speaking, numb to emotions. They, they maybe no longer know how to feel. Yeah? Oh, I'm going to leave that alone. Um, <coughs> Um, And then the third category would be people who don't find themselves fitting into either category, feel relatively at peace with their own emotions, and are pretty confused about the emotions of those around them. Um, They're confused by the, the people who can't feel, and they're confused by the people who seemingly only feel. Um, So those are, those are three audiences, and I think it's helpful to keep those in mind. They admittedly focus on the extremes. They, they say that they think the best way to help is to help those who have the extremes. Now, the other thing that I think is really helpful in this book is that they're not just addressing you, the reader, uh, and your emotions. They're addressing you as someone who's in someone else's life. And so there are questions that they ask that are, are about how do you interact with someone who has uh, a lot of emotions and maybe is, um, is conflicted. All right, so <clears throat> Josh also took us helpfully through the Westminster Confession and showed us um, various places where emotions are described. And I think I, as a um, more or less true blue Presbyterian, have, uh, have definitely um, bought into the perception that many people have of Presbyterians that feelings bad, reason good. Now, if someone actually asked me that in a creedal formula, I would say, no, of course not. Our reason is fallen, and so we can't trust it anymore. But when push comes to shove, um, I, would, I would definitely lean towards, well, we can trust our reason more than we can trust our emotions. But as Josh helpfully pointed us to, they're both fallen. So they should be both in the same category of skepticism. We should look at our feelings and we should look at our reason and say, hmm, are you aligning with God's word? (coughs) Okay. So this chapter is diving into negative emotions. This chapter is diving into negative emotions. What are some examples of negative emotions? Maybe I should use red. Okay. Do you mind if I make it more general? Do you mind if I just make it more general and say hatred? But you qualified it. I'm curious why. Well, there is a Jewish hatred to sin. Yes. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Anything else? Fear. Fear. Greg. Interesting. So, uh, so the title of the chapter, <laughs> everyone's like, this is good. Everyone's like on it. Um, the title of the chapter is, Sometimes it's Good to Feel Bad. So what we want to think about is the fact that sometimes negative emotions are actually, in fact, good. So in answer to your question, no, we're not only talking about morally uh, or sinful emotions. 
Sadness, okay. Okay. Anyone else? Anxiety. Okay. Lust, okay. Hmm. I'm going to have a hard time putting that into a into how it's good. Uh, what else? <laughs> Anyone else? Envy, okay. I'm sorry? Doubt, Doubt okay. All right. So these are a handful. We could, we could probably uh, think through and, and dig a, a lot more out. Okay, so here are some questions that the, the authors ask. And I would encourage you to just think about them. If you have a notepad, write these questions down along with your answers or just write your answers down. It would be good to be thinking about these as we go through this chapter. You're not going to answer these as I go, so I'm going to move through them somewhat quickly, but just think about them as we go through uh, this chapter. All right, so question one, what are the most uncomfortable emotions for you to feel? And the follow-up is, why do you think that's the case? So what are some of the most uncomfortable emotions for you to feel? Personally. This is all about you. <laughs> and if you don't have an answer right away, that's okay. Just think about it. Okay. Next, as we think about those three audiences, where do you put yourself? Uh, would you describe yourself as highly emotional? Numb? Uh, or st stable, you're, you're pretty much good. I'm sorry? No, you gotta choose a camp. Pick a side. Okay, so now for a question thinking about other people. How do you look at people in your life whose emotions have been a source of suffering for you? How do you look at people in your life whose emotions have been a source of suffering for you? Just think about that for a bit. And then finally, <coughs> think about someone you are trying to help and love. What do this person's negative emotions say about how he or she views the world? As you think about someone in your life, it could be a friend, family member, um, but what do this person's negative emotions say about how they view the world? Okay. <clears throat> so be percolating on those and think about them as we go. I believe that many of us, for various reasons, correct me if I'm wrong, feel free to chime in, but I believe that many of us, for various reasons, have, um, have adopted beliefs and coping mechanisms around negative emotions that 
that largely seek to either cover uh, or distract or sidestep around negative emotions. Agree? Disagree? What do you think? Furthermore, I think there's a sense in which some of us, not everybody, but some of us within the church might not, if you asked in a creedal formula, but have uh, an underlying assumption that greater faith equals fewer negative emotions. What do you think? This one's hard to pin down. Thankfully, we receive teaching that doesn't say that, so hopefully that's not dominant for us. That's a great point. Because as we grow in faith, we're, we're, we're going to be seeking to bring everything before the Lord more and more and not distract ourselves away, right? So we're going to, in many ways, we're going to, by the Holy Spirit, have our negative emotions brought to light for good or for repentance. <coughs> good. So, um, I, I did. Uh, I was I was having fun doing some searches last night, and uh, even got for those nerds in the room, Thomas. Uh, I, I even got to ask Chat GPT, the artificial intelligence. I was asking them some it some questions about how it would uh, how it would help me with negative emotions. Um, and you you kind of range, you kind of get a wide range. Uh, there's there's one view that is this positive thinking view. As a matter of fact, there's a book. What's the book? The Power of Positive Thinking. Exactly. (laughs) Now, I'm sure there are good things to be gleaned from that book in some ways, but the underlying concept is think happy thoughts. Crowd out those negative emotions by thinking about how you can change something or how you can be productive, etc. Now, there's kernels of truth, but there's there's a lot of advice out there that, uh, that's not just from that book, but is a, a, this idea of think happy thoughts, think more positive things. If I'm feeling sad, sing a happy song. Um, there's a, a, an excellent, in some ways, a, article by a self-professed child of positive psychology uh, where he writes kind of uh, analyzing his own assumptions. Uh, I went from being generally unha- a generally unhappy person to teaching myself a positive mindset, uh, a growth mentality, and the skills to reframe any negative situation. Anyone heard language like that? I feel like that's very corporate speak, too. Like you just reframe. Everything gets reframed. Um, I have adopted happiness principles into my everyday life writing down three good things a day, maintaining a regular gratitude practice, and reflecting on my wins. He goes on later, At one point, I got so invested in this happiness-first lifestyle that I was convinced I simply did not experience emotions, or I would reframe negative emotions so quickly that it was like I didn't feel them at all. Does that last bit sound concerning to you? If we think about the category of people who feel numb, maybe it's, the, maybe it's the outworking of a bad approach to dealing with negative emotions. We cover it over so much that we no longer even know how to feel. We scab over it. We're, we're like a person with uh, 
I think it's, is it Hodgkin? No, not Hodgkin's. What's uh, what we call a leprosy? The disease where you lose, you lose uh, feeling in your nerves such that you can, you can have your hand in fire and not know it, right? That's, that's, where, that's the road that this guy was going on. We want, to, we want to not have that approach. Now, thankfully, as I talked to Jack, chat GPT and, and researched different articles, uh, prevailing views seem to be shifting away from this just cover things over. And they'll say things like, um, like you, should, you should affirm your negative emotions and recognize that they have value and purpose. Again, there's a kernel of truth here. And that's, I, I think we could say on a very, very general way that that's a, a helpful move. And yet, it's still just not there. Um, there's a TED Talk that I skimmed briefly, the title of which is How to Make Stress Your Friend which is actually, it was pretty interesting. There were really interesting studies in there. Uh, and then one infographic even states, now this is, this is really good. I feel like I need this lately. Uh, <clears throat> another study found that we eat more comfort foods if we try to push back bad feelings <laughs> instead of accepting them and moving on. New weight loss program. Own your stress. By the end of this study, everyone's going to be a lighter, slimmer version of themselves. <laughs> so it's good to understand that negative emotions can be good, but we want to dig into why. Why do we say that negative emotions are good? So why is it good to feel bad? Just one, just one person raise their hand and tell me what you think. Things are bad. Sometimes things are bad, exactly. Okay. There are three principles that we need to think about as we approach uh, emotions. There are probably more than this, um, and I'm, we could talk about those, but I think that there are three big ones that we need to remember as we approach emotions. One, God is most pure in all his attributes. So list a few, goodness, mercy, love, justice. Okay, God is most pure. The second is, God formed all of creation... He made everything, and he called it what? Good. God made creation, and he called it good. And then Adam plunged all of creation into sin, brokenness, and darkness in his first sin that represented all of us. Those three are really important. So going back to why is it okay, why is it good to feel bad? What Thomas just said, sometimes things are bad. And a problem with this positive thinking idea is that it, it looks at the negative emotions as the root problem. Negative emotions aren't the root problem. It's the things about which we have negative thoughts that are the root problem. Everyone good on that? Okay, there's an important caveat there, though, and one that we're not going to talk about today. Our reason has fallen and our emotions are falling. So not everything, not every negative emotion that we experience is good, right? We're not going to talk about that. They deal with that more later in the book. Today, we want to focus on negative emotions that, that are good. And we're not necessarily going to dig into the weeds of, of how we mess that up in our own hearts, okay? Um, okay, so our authors open this chapter with the shortest of verses, John eleven thirty five, 35, 
Anyone know it? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So sometimes it's good to have negative emotions because Jesus had negative emotions. We really could just wrap it up there and say, go thou and think about this. Um, But we'll think about it a little bit more together. Um, They point out, he cries at the death of his friend and is deeply moved by Mary's anguish because that is what love does when confronted with loss. Jesus is the only perfect human being who who has ever lived, and that is why he does not refuse to share the pain of those he loves, not even for 10 minutes. This one, I never really thought about this, but this is incredible. Not even when he knows their sorrow is about to turn to astonished exaltation. Jesus weeps full well knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. There's so much in there to think about. Jesus, Jesus is, is not like dancing around like, hey, hey, I know something you don't know. <laughs> no, Jesus is saying, this is broken. This is, this is wrong. I, I believe, um, uh, others fact check me, but I, I'm I believe I've heard later on when it talks about him being deeply moved that that can almost mean like a churning in the gut leading towards like something like anger. Like he, death, death angers him. He has a holy, uh, he has has holy negative emotions uh, regarding death even as he is conquering death. So now we get into a little bit more sticky territory. Because I believe our authors would want to push us even further. And we're not going to talk too much about this because Thomas is going to get us all the way through this topic later. But I think they would want to push us to think about the fact that it's good to have negative emotions because God himself has negative emotions. Now, what what they do not mean by that is that God has passions. And if you're struggling with this idea because as soon as I read anything about God having feelings, I'm immediately nervous. Um, but there's a really helpful quote from Kevin DeYoung in the chapter at the end in the appendix on impassibility. On God's does, it's called, Does God Feel? Incidentally, you can also find it on crossway.com if you don't have the book. If you just do a search for, um, does, uh, does God Really Feel? Uh, you, can, you can read their article. But uh, Kevin DeYoung has a helpful quote. If we are equating emotions with the old sense of passions, then God doesn't have emotions. Uh, passions meaning something that, that we respond to. We have passions that flare up because of, in response to some circumstance. That's not what God, that's not what God does, because he's immutable. But if we are talking about affections, he does. God's emotions are cognitive affections involving his construal of a situation. Most of what we call emotion in God is his evaluation of what is happening with his creation. Any questions on that briefly? Any concerns? Okay. So we, we, can, we can ground our negative emotions in saying that somehow, in a way that, that is admittedly very difficult to think through, they find their source in how God evaluates, uh, how God evaluates situations. 
Um, <clears throat> put another way, our authors say, you were made in the image of God himself, and that means you were made to see the world as he sees it, to respond as he, respond, uh, as he responds, to hate what he hates, and to be bothered by what brings him displeasure. Furthermore, it says evaluating the world as fractured and being moved in response are deeply Christian experiences. Um, okay, so let's think about a few examples. Um, we, we talked about, uh, I, I don't have examples for all of these prepared, but we, we talked about hatred. We'll look at some examples in scripture of hatred, sadness, uh, anger, anxiety slash distress slash concern. Anxiety is tough because, um, because there are connotations in there that I think we would, have to, we would have to be very careful in applying that to Jesus. Uh, and yet there are things tied up with anxiety, like distress, anguish, worry, concern, that, uh, that, that we, we can say are, are good. Um, didn't cover lust, uh, and didn't cover envy or doubt. So we got, we got most of the other ones. So grief or mourning. First of all, uh, I, I could have led with this. I kind of went chronologically through the Bible with some of the examples, but uh, we, we could lead with, how is Jesus described in Isaiah? Man of sorrows. Yeah, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So there's example number one. That's the supreme example. Jesus is the model for how we express emotions correctly, right? Uh, and so it says that Jesus is, Jesus was the man of sorrows. Um, <clears throat> but then looking at, uh, the, at 1 Samuel 20, verse 34, uh, this is the passage where Saul is, uh, Saul is having a, a feast. I think it's a new moon feast. David's not there because he's concerned that Saul's going to kill him. Jonathan devises a plan. I'm going to basically test my dad and figure out if he does, in fact, want to kill you. Uh, and finally, it becomes very clear, because a spear was thrown at Jonathan, that, yep, Saul wants to kill David. And it says, And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. This was interesting because <clears throat> when Josh brought up the, the larger catechism on the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, as the Westminster divines flesh that out, part of it is that we are to, uh, we are to, um, what does it say that? We're, uh, we're not to rejoice in the disgrace or infamy of others. We're not to rejoice uh, in the disgrace or infamy of others. So here, I think we see Jonathan having a right grief over David being maligned, A, in Saul's heart, and then on other examples, Saul is spewing lies about David being a traitor. Jonathan is grieved by this. And this is convicting for us. Are we grieved when we see people's character dragged through the mud? Does it, does it grieve us? And here we see that grief is mingled with anger. Um, <clears throat> furthermore, we see um, Job saying uh, he, he's, he's defending himself. He, he's, he's crying out uh, for, for vindication in the face of, of these accusations that he was, he was uh, all his suffering was for sin. And he says, did, I, did not I weep 
for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Um, here again is a positive example in scripture of an emotional response we should have to the needy. And this is very convicting to me because I think I do this. I tend to think many of us do. Uh, we want to put calluses over that good and right grief. We see someone on the side of the road asking for food, and my mind immediately goes to all of these rational reasons why I don't need to feel burdened with grief for them in that moment. Or I feel helpless to do anything, and so I build calluses over that helplessness uh, and, and don't feel anything. And yet, I don't, that's, that's not biblical. We should, even if we can't do anything to help, that grief should drive us to pray. That is good and right grief to have. No matter what the circumstance is, the grief that we should have for the needy is appropriate, and we should, we should respond in prayer. Um, Ecclesiastes, famously, uh, if you've listened to the birds, you've got this, you know, this song. Uh, there is a season for everything, um, for the, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. So there again, it's like very clear. Sadness, mourning, grief, these are appropriate. It also says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. <clears throat> There's a lot that I think we could uh, think about here, um, but, but one overarching thing as I uh, think about that passage is, is sobriety. There's there, something about grief and, and mourning and sadness that gives a good and right sobriety to our lives. Uh, and, and from that sobriety, we, have, uh, we, we can grow in wisdom. Uh, we can grow in love for others. We can grow in grace. Um, <clears throat> any thoughts on that? Very minor anecdote. Uh, I have, I've had a, I'm, I'm in the category sometimes of numb to emotions and other times having lots of them. Uh, and in the past, I would, I would get so excited to go to like an event or a party. And I mean, I would get really amped and and it would always lead me to say super stupid things when I got to the party. And then I would drive home, like, ugh, ugh, having righteous anger with myself. So I came up with a strategy. I would listen to really melancholy, depressing soundtracks on my way to the party. <laughs> it worked. It worked. Um, <clears throat> what's that? <laughs> the power, the power of negative thinking. Yes. So I think grief is interesting because it's also our next step. Um, like I, I, I've been going through grief in my own family and loss of my dad mm. um, early last year. And it's interesting with all of the siblings, you know, you've got one who has taken grief to a point where it's not biblical. Mm. It's idolatry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think grief can is biblical, but 
Yeah. And I, th- I think a great place to go for that uh, is 1 Thessalonians 4.13, where Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So I think we get that, that tension beautifully in that passage. He doesn't say uh, that you might not grieve. He's assuming grief. We have to grieve in the face of death. And just to, I don't think this is always wrong. I get the idea, but just to get this off my chest, um, we, we see that in our culture of celebrations of life. It's appropriate to have a celebration of life. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But if it is, if it is an attempt to not deal with the fact that this is sad and to mourn, then I think there's a, there's a problem there, and we're going to become numb. Um, but simultaneously, we don't become idolatrous. It's, it, we have hope as we grieve. Uh, we're, we're to grieve as those knowing that, especially if they're a believer, we grieve knowing that they're with the Lord. Uh, and even if they're not a believer, we grieve knowing that, that God, is, God is still good. God is still loving. Um, and and we, we have hope. <clears throat> um, anger or wrath. Gosh, I... This is the one I have like the fewest scriptural examples for because there is such an abundance of <laughs> scriptural examples for this. Plus, we already went through good and angry, so go review those. Um, but like if you go through the time of, of Israel in the wilderness, you've got lots of opportunity to see God getting angry with Israel. If you look at Judges, you've got lots of opportunity to see God getting angry with Israel um, and with very good reason in all cases. Um, <clears throat> not that I'm the judge of that, but I can agree with what is true. Uh, worry, concern, anxiety, distress. That's, uh, that's sort of in this one. And again, caveat, anxiety is a, I think that deserves more, um, that deserves probably a deeper dive getting into how the actual Greek word is used and, and where that does or does not differ from our cultural idea of anxiety. But certainly worry, concern, and distress. <clears throat> then David said to Gad, um, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. This is David after he foolishly uh, and arrogantly goes about the census to, to see, you know, how much do I got? How can I, if I want to go to war, who do I have behind me? And he's confronted with his sin, and he is rightly in distress. He's rightly in distress because he is facing God's judgment. He's facing God's just judgment. And so he's, he's given this choice, fall into the hands of man or God, and he's in distress. Um, that is appropriate. We're going to talk a little bit more about when it's the flip side of this in just a second. But if he were not in distress, I think that would say something really, really bad about David's soul. Similarly, if we're not in distress, as we hear the, the reality of God's judgment in the face of our own sin, if we're in sin and we hear the table being fenced, then we should be in a, a, a level of distress. <clears throat> yeah, that's exactly right. Perfect. I won't even. I, I can move right past that one. Um, 
There are a lot of other examples of distress. Paul talks about being, uh, Paul talks about Epaphroditus being distressed or, or worried because he knew that the Philippians were worried about him. That's appropriate. Now, I rag my mom to no end because she, because she worries about all of us. And, um, and I've been convicted. Maybe, maybe there's a sense in which I'm expecting her to, to not have good and right negative emotions. Um, because there's a sense in which we should worry, we should be concerned over each other. Similarly to what Alicia said about grief, there's a way that we can go quite wrong with this. Um, but the root of that is not wrong. Greg. My personal thought is distress maybe leans a little bit more on the anxiety. There's like a, maybe a anticipation, maybe a little bit of doubt. Yeah, there's, yeah, there, it maybe it's looking a little bit more to something happening in the future where grief is dealing with something that's happened in the past. I don't know. Right. It's like art, like a straight on him. Right. So it seems like you, I see that God can still use him in a way, like use you. Right. Without you make or his face by it, because it's not, it's not saying like you didn't mean to do it. Right. You're just recognizing that emotion that's in it and that. Which can also uh, have an analog to our experience with grief. Not all of our grief is out of regret. Some of our grief is out of uncontrollable things. That obviously that's not in the case of God, right. but we're going to cover this in chapter fifteen. Perfect. Hold. As you know, that grief is always associated with some kind of blasphemy. We grieve the Holy Spirit mm. by saying curses. Mm-hmm.
right? It goes back to the idea of God's emotions being an evaluation of, of the situation, right? Um, okay, so finally, um, and I, I would encourage you to just think through a lot of these more. Uh, we didn't talk about hatred, but there, there's one that's sticky. There was an interesting headline of an article on Desiring God called, Do We Love Enough to Hate? Um, and, it, and it kind of talked about the, the good and right place for hatred. And you, know, I, you read Psalm 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? I hate them with complete hatred. I skipped a, a line in between. That's tough to really think through, um, but, it's, but it's true. Um, we, we should hate what God hates. But I, I want to close by thinking about the flip side of this. Not only do we see positive examples of negative emotions being good, but we also see examples in Scripture of positive emotions being bad. So they say, as counterintuitive as it seems, awful things like grief can actually be exactly the right feelings to have, feelings that honor God and would be wrong not to feel. Um, This is sort of related to emotions, but uh, in Haggai, the people have returned from, uh, from exile to rebuild the temple, and they've focused all the time on their own houses, and the temple has gone, uh, uh, gone by the wayside. And it says, is it a time for you, to, you, you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Uh, I think the lack, of, the lack of action points to a lack of, of right negative emotion, of, of sorrow over the fact that the temple is not yet built. They're, they're contented in their paneled houses, as opposed to having a, a, a holy distress over the, the shambles in which the temple is in. Um, in Isaiah 22, it speaks of the, 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 the day of, a day of judgment in the Valley of Vision. In that day, the Lord, of hosts, uh, Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They are positive emotions. You know, like they, were, they, were, they had happy thoughts, and they were pushing down all those negative thoughts, and that's exactly what their problem was. And the last example that I think is really quite striking for us is, uh, is Jesus in the garden with his disciples. So Jesus comes to them and says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Here again, we see sorrow being an appropriate uh, thing because Jesus feels it. But then their response is what's concerning. He goes to pray. Uh, Sorry, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He goes to pray and he comes back finding them what? Sleeping. Now, this this was convicting for me to think about because a false barometer I have in my head sometimes when thinking about anxiety is, if it's keeping you up at night, well, God says that he gives to, gives to his beloved sleep, so you're probably not trusting God if it's keeping you up at night. I'm wrong. There are things that should keep us up at night. There are things that should have such distress in our, in our souls that we, we, th- that we keep watch. Uh, we, we pray uh, we pray to God with fervency. Um, and certainly, the disciples were faced with a supreme example of, of how they should share in their Savior's sorrow, how they should share in his distress in the face of the cross. And yet, 
they're, they're okay sleeping. Um, and so there are very clear examples both of we should feel this way with negative emotions and also examples where maybe the positive emotion is precisely the wrong emotion to have. Um, Yeah, yeah. certainly I, I wouldn't want to apply this inappropriately to all examples, but this, uh, and you, you really see this, I think it's in Mark, because Jesus specifically says, Simon, could you not stay awake? And this is right after he just told Peter that he was going to fall, and Peter says, not me, and, and he's, saying, he's saying, you couldn't even watch with me now you couldn't even stay awake and pray for your own soul you're, you're going you're going into this battle we're facing with arrogance and with the wrong emotions um so yeah i don't think that would apply to all hard hardships but certainly in this case they should have had more distress even as they viewed if they would weather the storm which they didn't um right yeah. Yeah. Well, the good thing is, if we think about that, that last point that we said at the beginning, that, uh, that man, Adam plunged creation into sin, is that the real, the real hope is that there will be a day when we don't need to have negative emotions, not because we've conquered negative emotions, but because the things about which we would have sorrow or hatred or anger will, will no longer be in our view because we'll be in glory. Um, and so, so that's the hope that we have. Let's uh, close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that that you, especially in Jesus, uh, paved the way for us to know what it is to have good and right emotions, positive and negative. I pray that you would shape our emotions by your spirit, not by culture, not by our own desires, not by our own, uh, uh, not by our own power, but that we would have our emotions shaped by your word uh, and your spirit working um, in your word. And we pray that uh, you would help us to have hope in view of glory, uh, trusting that you will make 
the crooked path straight. And I pray that we would have great joy in meditating on that today as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.